Good evening. A strange Olympics. Fauci and the new COVID surge. Trump in Arizona and joins for jabs at Senator Schumer's pad in Brooklyn. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, July 25th, 2021. A Palestinian teenager has died after being shot by Israeli soldiers at a protest over illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. Palestinian authorities reported that yesterday. Hundreds of Palestinians attended the teenager, Mohammed al-Tamimi. The 17-year-old died a day after the protests in the Flashpoint Palestinian village of Beta. The Israeli army said its soldiers had responded with riot dispersal means after Palestinians hurled rocks at them. The Red Crescent said 320 Palestinians were injured in the clashes, including 21 by live fire, 68 by rubber-tipped bullets, and many others by tear gas. Beta has been the scene of frequent unrest since May, when dozens of Israeli families arrived and began building the settlement on a hilltop near Nablus in defiance of Israeli and international law. After weeks of protests and tensions, the government of nationalist Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett struck a deal with the settlers. All Israeli settlements in the West Bank are regarded as illegal by most of the international community. And in Japan, under blue skies and a blazing sun, surfing has made its Olympic debut today, more than a century after Hawaiian Duke Kahanamaku first pushed for its inclusion at the Games. The action began early at Surigasaki Surfing Beach, about 60 miles east of Tokyo, with the first surfers paddling out in favorable wave conditions. Brazil's Italo Ferreira, the 2019 world champion, caught the first wave. He learned to surf standing on the foam box his father sold fish from. In the women's competition, American Carissa Moore scored a narrow win over Teresa Bonvalat of Portugal. Most spectators are barred from attending any of the games, and large barriers prevented locals from sneaking a look at the surfers, although a huge sign in support of female Japanese rider Mahina Madea could be seen draped on a nearby hill. Back in the United States, the United States is in an unnecessary predicament of soaring COVID-19 cases fueled by unvaccinated Americans and the virulent Delta variant. So says Dr. Anthony Fauci, describing himself as very frustrated. In the wrong direction, if you look at the inflection of the curve of new cases, it is among the unvaccinated. And since we have 50 percent of the country is not fully vaccinated, that's a problem particularly when you have a variant like Delta, which has this extraordinary characteristic of being able to spread very efficiently and very easily from person to person. That's Dr. Fauci. Nearly 163 million people or 49 percent of the eligible U.S. population are vaccinated. Meanwhile, the Delta variant has been spreading across states with a high percentage of unvaccinated people. Los Angeles County reported 2,089 new cases of COVID-19 and four additional deaths today. Young black and Latino residents continue to have the lowest rates of vaccination in the country. Black residents also had the highest rate of new infections over the last month in L.A. at 181 per 100,000. Latinos had an infection rate of 62 
per 100,000 residents. Dr. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC says more than 99% of all deaths from COVID are among unvaccinated people. In Alabama, only 33% of people who can receive the vaccine had been fully vaccinated. Governor Kay Ivey says the unvaccinated are at fault. These folks are choosing a horrible lifestyle of self-inflicted pain. Folks supposed to have common sense. But it's time for to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. It's the unvaccinated folks that are letting us name. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey. Meanwhile, fallout continues after sharp words between Dr. Fauci and Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul. Today, Fauci told CNN it would have been negligent for the United States not to fund research at the Wuhan Virology Lab. The lab is at the heart of numerous conspiracies claiming the coronavirus was accidentally released in China. It was a peer-reviewed proposal that was peer-reviewed and given a very high rating for the importance of why it should be done to be able to go and do a survey of what was going on among the bat population. It was very regulated, it was reviewed, it was given progress reports, it was published in the open literature. If we were starting to look for bats in Secaucus, New Jersey, or Fairfax County, Virginia, it wouldn't contribute very much of where SARS-CoV-1 originated. Bats are believed to be the source of the uh, original virus that then transmorphed into the um, coronavirus that's right now sweeping the world. During the hearing that was uh, they were referring to last week, Fauci accused Paul of dishonesty. And you are obfuscating the truth. And you are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual I totally resent that. And if anybody is lying here, Senator, it is you. President Biden has requested a full report from U.S. intelligence agencies on the possibility the coronavirus originated at the Wuhan lab. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today named a second Republican critic of Donald Trump, Representative Adam Kinzinger, to a special committee investigating the Capitol riot. He and other Republicans have expressed an interest to serve on the select committee. I wanted to appoint the three of the members that Leader McCarthy suggested, but he withdrew their names. The two that I would not appoint are people who would jeopardize the integrity of the investigation. There's no way I would tolerate their antics as we seek the truth. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Kinziger was one of just two Republican representatives to vote in favor of a bill creating the select committee, the other being Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Both have criticized former President Trump since the Capitol riot that occurred on January 6th. Pelosi's announcement came after she refused to accept the appointment of Republicans Jim Jordan and Jim Banks to the select committee on Wednesday. Democrats have called for an investigation into the January 6th riot, where supporters of the former president breached the Capitol and forced lawmakers to evacuate, delaying the certification of the 2020 election results. And speaking of the former president, during a speech in Phoenix last night, Donald Trump referred to Taliban leader Hibatullah Akunzada as Mohammed. Trump then imitated Akunzada by making grunting sounds. During the rally, Trump also recalled threatening to bomb the village Akunzada lived in. Russia now, not the Soviet Union because of Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So they fight. I said, we're going to come back and hit you harder. And I said, do you understand? He goes, huh? Huh? 
He's a rough guy, you know. I started off the conversation. I said, Mohammed, how are you? President Trump. Not a lot of social grace, but, you know, that was a nice. He was being nice. I think he was being as nice as he could be, Andy. But they're rough. You know, he's a rough. That's all they do is fight. But I said, we're going to come back and hit you harder than any country has ever been hit. And your village, where I know you are and where you have everybody, that's going to be the point at which the first bombs drop. I told him that. I told him And the U.S. is leaving Afghanistan by September 11th, according to President Biden. The Taliban controls more than half of the country. And Trump reiterated his claim he had won the 2020 presidential election, hinting the courts would reinstate him as president sooner rather than later. They lifted up the skirt of the table and lo and behold, it was loaded up with ballots. But they weren't ballots that were in boxes that ballots come. They were in other, whether it was suitcases, it was totally different. They took those and they started putting them in, sometimes three times, sometimes five times. And they stood there. And I tell you what, I'll tell you what, when people looked at that, they got sick. People threw up looking at it. And law enforcement did very little. But now what's happening is I believe the courts are going to do a lot. It's a big deal going on. That was total criminal behavior. So you hear those hundreds of thousands of votes. We won the state of Arizona. And that's Trump in Arizona. Uh, He referred where he referred to his opponents as tyrants out to get him. We are at the beginning of a communist system. Radicals are seizing power and destroying everything we hold dear as Americans. And it's happening. And I said it was going to happen. They're still coming after me because I will never stop fighting and winning for you. From the very beginning of our movement, we have been fighting against the professional political class, the deep state, the fake news media, the Russia hoaxers, the globalists, the socialists, the communists, the lobbyists, the corporate special interests who are absolutely terrible, and now the critical race theorists. All of them oppose our movement for a simple reason. We believe in putting America first. It's very simple. And prior to his arrival in Phoenix, Arizona's Secretary of State had a harsh, harsh message for the former president. Katie Hobbs said, like most grown-ups, take your loss and accept it and move on. Nothing that's going on here is going to change the outcome. And really, this is nothing more than being a sore loser. Meanwhile, renowned Watergate reporter Carl Bernstein minced no words in sharing his thoughts about Donald Trump, calling the former president an American war criminal who suffers from delusional madness. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Last week, cannabis stocks flagged after a federal bill was unveiled by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and critics piled on from all directions. Even the bill's own authors acknowledged shortcomings, saying in a summary of the proposal that there's still no standard to measure drug driving or research on how marijuana affects fetal health and that limits their ability to be as comprehensive as they'd like. The plan is to fund more research on those and other topics, but that could take years. But activists in New York say legalizing marijuana is a public health emergency equal to the coronavirus. 
To make the point, a group of pot advocates met in front of Chuck Schumer's home near Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn today to hold a Joints for Jabs event where vaccinated persons over 21 get a free joint. New York State legalized possession of up to six ounces of marijuana earlier this year. The state of Washington has supported similar giveaways to get more people to take the jab. Activist Dana Beal. We're giving away weed because there's a massive marijuana surplus. And a lot of the marijuana surplus is, shall we say, a bit brown. It's no longer green and fresh and piney. What do you do with pot you can't sell anymore? Give it away. And Aaron Kay, known as the pie man for flinging creamy confections at right-wing personalities, was there in his wheelchair. He says nothing could keep him away. The war on drugs has to go. There's got to be peace on the war on drugs. Enough is is not enough. It's more than enough is more than enough in this. And Senator Schumer... You know very well what we were dealing with on January 6th. You know what you got to put up with, with some of the characters in the Senate and the House. So keep plugging the bill and get the prisoners out. Deschedule, don't reschedule. And young independent candidate for city council in Astoria, Edwin DeJesus, says there needs to be even broader legalization of cannabis. From a a local perspective, what I would do is I would petition Albany, I would pressure Albany to expand the legalization laws because right now there's still people in jail, disproportionately African-American, Latino-American men who are still in jail, who are carried what is over uh, considered to be the legal amount. We need to expand homegrown laws so that people can actually grow more weed than just, what is it, four plants, I think. Uh, You know, otherwise you're going to let the big marijuana companies, these large corporations and the investment bankers who are getting in on the market, they got to give licenses to every person who went to jail for it if they wanted to start their own, like, dispensary or something like that. I think anyone who was impacted by the war of drugs, lost years of their one life on this planet because of the war on drugs, deserves to be given some sort of economic stimulus. And that was Edwin DeJesus. Among the small group of tokers who stood in a cloud of smoke outside of Schumer's residence was Randy Wicker, a longtime activist known to WBAI listeners in the 60s. And I am a very old-time activist from civil rights, homosexual civil rights, uh, anti-war, and also as one of the founders of Lemar. What does Lemar mean? Lemar means legalized marijuana. Where have you been? Is it that far out of date? <laughs> Tell me, what, how long, did, when did Lemar exist? Lemar started around 1964, and it really never stopped existing. It just fragmented. There were different chapters in different towns, and different personalities became prominent in it. Was it about the gay scene, like the Medellin Society? That no, oh no. I was selling marijuana newsletters on Bleecker Street. This older man came up to me and said, what does this have to do with the Manichine Society? I said, absolutely nothing. Because they were such a, I had left the gay movement. They were so backward and, and causity and they didn't think we should go out and give speeches or be public until we had psychiatrists saying we weren't ill. Right, I mean, these people had no idea. You know, we're the, we were the authorities on ourselves. It's like marijuana. You want to know about marijuana? Talk to the people that use it, people that live with it, even the people, people perhaps who have problems of overusing it. But they're the real authorities on something, people that are really involved in the scene. 
I'm sure alcoholics have, can tell you more about alcoholism than, you know, the authorities. Wicker also had a notable gay rights show on WBAI back in the 60s. I did the most popular program of BAI ever done. It was an interview in 1962 with five gays in a panel called Live and Let Live. And after that, I did. I, Chris Koch was the manager. He wanted me to get a grant. I was covering Times Square, a documentary on that. And uh, then I got caught up. I moved on to marijuana, civil rights, anti-war, the whole shebang. It played the big role in everything in this day. And he told a story about how he provided yippee activist Abby Hoffman with the red, white, and blue shirt he used to attend a meeting of the uh, hearing of the House Un-American Activities Committee. I had a button store in St. Mark's Place. I was a button king during the anti-Vietnam War. It was also a headshot. We sold pipes. We sold all kinds of art deco uh, posters, deco posters, you know, anti-war stuff, civil rights stuff. Generally speaking, make of not war that type of thing, you know. We had a number, we had the Mexican guy's pot, uh, Nirvana, Nirvana Need It, uh, Take a Trip with Jesus. We had a lot of pro-pot, pro-LSD buttons. I had a shirt I bought in West Village. It was a red, white, and blue shirt. It looked like an American flag, but it was made in France. So it was really a French flag. And so Abby Hoffman was living next door, and I said, Abby, if the Juac ever calls me and I have a shirt to wear to the hearing, so I lent it to him. He wore it to the Capitol and it made the New York Times. The shirt was torn off his back before he got to the Capitol four months later. And said, oh, that other shirt. I had two of those shirts. He said, that other shirt. I said, look, that last shirt I sold you. I said, you, it was torn off your shirt. You never offered to pay the $25, which in those days was about $200, right, for the shirt I paid for. I said, if you want this second shirt, you're going to pay me $50 for it. So he gave me the $50 to get the second shirt. He ended up using it on the uh, one of the big talk shows. He went out with a kid and then took it off. Randy Wicker, a longtime activist and small business person from the Lower East Side in Greenwich Village. And New York Attorney General Letitia James announced earlier this month an historic proposed $26 billion agreement that will help deliver desperately needed relief to communities across New York and the rest of the nation struggling with opioid addiction. But Adam Marcel, an art professor from Pennsylvania, lost a loved one to opiates, says the deal is just not enough. Ask any family that's lost somebody to an overdose or anyone who has family members or people they love currently struggling, they're going to tell you that these settlements mean absolutely nothing. This is uh, another great example of what happens in America too often. Um, we think if we can pay enough, we can uh, do whatever we like. These companies are responsible for 500,000 people dead. No matter how much money they try to throw at this, it's never going to be enough. What we're looking for is real justice here and real accountability, and that means people being sentenced to jail for their actions. So the settlements don't go nearly far enough. Anytime big settlements come down like this also, I think all of us are very skeptical as to where the money is going to end up going, no matter what the amount is. Letitia James said this is the best that they can expect. Maybe it's the best that a government official can expect, but it's not the best that families expect. And this is not nearly over. So Families like the Sackler family or Johnson & Johnson or all these others that think they're going to be able to pay this amount and this is going to somehow make this go away, they're really going to be in for a surprise because families like mine 
and all the families that I work with across the country once they can never have. We're never going to get the people that we lost back. And the idea that dollar amount is somehow going to start the healing process for us is just never going to happen. Is there a healing process and what would it take? One major thing that could happen is to actually see someone have to spend time behind bars for their actions. There were moves made that were purposely done to be able to subjugate an entire generation of people into having to take the medication that these people were creating. Those conversations were had. Sackler family early on did early market research to find the most susceptible areas in the country, people that were already lower income, more susceptible to pain, doctors that were over, already overprescribing. These conversations were had. That's a premeditated action that they spent millions and millions of dollars to figure out. They injected their product into those areas and it spread like wildfire. So the, the only way that I would ever find any type of satisfaction would be to see one of these individuals behind bars. They could have just legalized marijuana and handed it out to people would have been a lot better. They're legalizing it because it's now a marketable product they're going to make trillions of dollars off of. There's a difference between that and saying decriminalizing, meaning I can go out and buy a bag of weed. Bridge the gap to opiates. So what Oregon's doing and saying that's what the country should do. I'm very skeptical. The main reason why states are legalizing is is revenue generated. In Pennsylvania, where I'm at, that's the entire reason why they're moving towards that. It has nothing to do with helping folks that you know might have opioid addiction. But it has nothing to do with mental health or keeping people um, in a better state of mind. It has to do with making as much money as we possibly can. Adam D. Marcells, an art professor from Pennsylvania who lost a loved one to opioids. The proposed agreement will resolve claims against three of the nation's largest drug distributors, McKesson Corporation, Cardinal Health Incorporated, and Amerisource Bergen Drug Corporation, as well as one of the nation's largest drug manufacturers, Johnson & Johnson, known as J&J, a provider of one of the many vaccines for COVID. It's over the company's roles in creating and fueling the opioid epidemic. New York communities ravaged by opioids would receive specifically up to 100, uh, pardon me, $1.25 billion to fund prevention, treatment, and recovery programs. And that's on the news for July 25th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineers, Max Schmid. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.